Welcome back. It's great to see you again. This is MDEX's weekly podcast covering the top stories in regulatory affairs with the assistance of our team of reporters around the globe. My name is James Panicki, a senior editor with MLEX's Asia-Pacific operations, and today we're broadly looking at the one issue, albeit from two very different perspectives. Our antitrust reporter Nicholas Hurst has returned from the ICN conference in Berlin, where antitrust regulators have been talking about the big issues of the moment. Among those big issues attracting attention are the changes to the antitrust landscape in the United States under the Biden administration. We've talked about this new direction for the FTC and the DOJ's antitrust division before on the podcast, but we'll see now how this is percolating through the system and the degree to which it's reverberating internationally. And we'll also examine how the changes apply to antitrust reviews. Our reporter Curtis Eichelberger will join us to hammer home one key message, and that is that there's a perception that the enforcement has become too weak. And there's an interesting conversation there about the agency's dual roles as regulators and enforcers. That's in about 10 minutes from now. First up, though, MLEX Chief Brussels Correspondent Nicholas Hurst is back in Belgium and he joins me now on the line. So, Nicholas, uh, firstly, tell me something about this conference. What was it all about and what was going on? Okay, this were, these were three conferences packed into a single week in Berlin. There was a conference organized by the International Chamber of Commerce, there was a conference organized by Germany's competition enforcer, the Bundeskartellamt. And then there was a, a conference strung across a series of days organised by the International Competition Network. Uh, it was uh, Europe's conference jamboree to counterbalance the American Bar Association's antitrust conference in, in Washington that uh, took place in April. And the International Competition Network does feel in some way like a counterweight to the, the ABA because... That conference gathers thousands of American antitrust lawyers all talking to each other. The international, the ICN conference is almost only regulators, regulators talking to regulators. You don't make it sound particularly appealing, I must say, but tell me something about what was going on and, and what the vibe was and where was it being held? Well, well let me, let me add, add in a little bit more colour. Like I said, it took place in, in Berlin after several years of being called off because of, of COVID. Um, Germany is the current head of the International Competition Network. Um, and it was Berlin in springtime. It was lovely and there were some wonderful social events organised around it. There was a grand buffet in a historic restaurant. There was a boat tour along the River Spree. There was a, a fabulous dinner, actually, in what used to be, a, in what was a 1900 pool in Pretzlauerberg in this lovely leafy neighborhood. So, so still sound boring? Uh, no, it sounds very interesting. Do you mean a pool as in a swimming pool? It was. It was a 1900 swimming pool that's been uh, reconverted into a, a fabulous dining hall. <laughs> it's a bit hard to picture, I must say, but I'll take your word for it. Now, there were a few competition superstars at the conference, if not in the pool itself, uh, tell me something about who they were and what they had to say. Okay, well, Jonathan Cantor and Lena Khan, the two uh, top US antitrust enforcers, still have star attraction after what must be about a year in, in the job. 
everyone is uh, curious to know how they're going to pull off what they promise will be a remarkable about turn for antitrust in the United States. Um, I think the US has always played quite an influential role at these uh, gatherings, being the largest uh, enforcer in the, in the, in the world. Um, and it was quite remarkable to see them speak at, at, at the event and see them exhorting all the enforcers from uh, Africa, Latin America, uh, Asia, Europe, to be more radical, not more conservative, more radical in how they enforce antitrust law. Then there are, there are other stars or there are other people that uh, garnered interest. It was the debut for Gina Cass-Gottlieb, who's the new head of the Competition Authority in Australia. Um, it was also the debut, more or less, for Benoit Coré, who's heading up uh, France's Competition Authority after uh, the departure of Isabelle de Silva. I'd also say that an abstract star of the show was probably the U Europe's Digital Market Markets Act. As you've discussed before on the podcast, this was uh, this is sort of land landmark legislation that's meant to clamp down on big tech platforms. It was agreed, negotiators or legislators agreed on the text about six weeks ago, and so there was a lot of interest at the conference in how it would be used how it was going to work in practice, what its strengths were and what its potential weaknesses were. And Nicholas, I'm curious, was that call to arms on the part of uh, the American regulators? Was Did that go down well? Was that well received? I think it's fair to say this conference was remarkably one-sided. All the speed, there was almost unanimity from the speakers that more enforcement was needed, tougher enforcement was needed, the tech giants pose serious threat to, to the economy and to competition, so on, so on. So, yes, it did go down well. I can imagine none of them are going to say that they need fewer powers and they need to be less active than they already are, I suppose. That's right. No one stuck their hand up and said, hey, come on, guys, let's step back and see, let the market fix itself. Were there any other major themes at the conference that we need to be aware of? So I think the, the biggest theme... Uh, which has been dealt with uh, amply and lordly in, in this podcast is the crusade against big tech. The second big theme was the question of merge enforcements. Enforcers say they need to be tougher. They need to stop more mergers. Too many mergers have got through. Markets are too concentrated. And this came up, I think, in an earlier podcast where you were discussing this merger between the cargo handling companies, Cone Cranes and Cargo Tech. Well, that whole debate was still very much alive at the the con at the conferences in, in Berlin. Now, third theme, I think, was uh, algorithms, uh, which I haven't heard for, for a while. There was, on the one hand, you had Jonathan Cantor warning uh, companies that uh, are increasingly using algorithms to set prices, to negotiate with suppliers. Um, and he essentially warned them that just because it's an algorithm doing the negotiating or setting the prices, that will not be an excuse for companies that end up expressly or tacitly colluding with their competitors. So they won't be able to say, my computer did it, I had nothing to do with the collusion. That's right. To quote him, whether you use a smoke-filled room in a basement or you're using AI or an API, it's still the same thing. It's collusion. And we're investing our resources to make sure we can spot that and address it. Uh, that was very much in keeping with this 
uh, tough, combative line that uh, Jonathan Cantor in particular has been uh, putting out ever since he took the helm at the uh, DOJ. There was another enforcer that dealt with the question of algorithms. That was Gina Cass-Gottlieb, the new head of Australia's competition authority, who was describing how her investigators had to dig into the algorithms of companies such as Uber and Trivago to understand how they worked and whether they were really doing what they were meant to be doing, or whether they were doing at least what they were telling consumers that they were doing. You also spoke to the head of the Ukrainian Competition Authority, who was at the conference. You were able to uh, to record an interview at the margins of the uh, speeches. What did she have to say about the situation that her country is, is confronting at the moment? Yeah, that's right. I spoke with Ola Pishanska on the margins of the conference. Um, she wanted to explain the situation of... Uh, the competition authority in Ukraine, which is uh, unsurprisingly, it's been closed down. The internet site has crashed. Everyone's working from home. Everyone's working remotely if they're working at all. And she wanted to make sure that uh, companies were aware of the implications of that. Now, Ukrainian competition law still applies, even if the competition authority is not processing uh, decisions and cases, investigations at the moment. This is quite relevant for mergers because there are many mergers that need to notify in Ukraine. Um, now, of course, they can't notify if the competition authority is not processing merger applications. And what she wanted companies to know is that they should feel free to go ahead and close their deals. The Ukrainian competition authorities issue guidance on how they can do this. It says it is obliged to impose a small but an absolute minimal, as small as they can, fine on them for gun jumping or closing without formal approval. But she wants to reassure companies that this will be the minimum possible, I think about 1,700 euros, uh, dollars, so long as they look at the guidance, they follow the steps set out there. And once uh, competition enforcement is resumed, they then make sure all the, all the, the notification is in order. I think that she's trying to reassure companies that there are, given that there are some doubts out there for ongoing deals about what, how they, what they should do about obtaining approval from uh, in Ukraine, obviously. Nicholas, thank you so much for being in Berlin for MLEX and thank you for talking to me today. Thanks, James. And that was Nicholas Hurst, MLEX's chief correspondent covering antitrust and M&A out of Brussels. And we've showcased one of his Berlin reports at our website, and you'll be able to find it at the following address, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X, marketinsight.com. Just click on the News Hub tab. Although MLEX subscribers have full access to the flurry of stories that came from Nicholas when he was in Berlin, including that interview with Ukraine's top competition official that Nicholas just referred to. So plenty to catch up with there if you haven't done so already. You're with MLEX. I'm James Paniki. Thank you very much for making it this far. Coming up next, why US antitrust agencies are set to adopt a more muscular stance on antitrust reviews. don't forget you can subscribe to MLEX Podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify and Stitcher. That way we'll appear in your podcast feed automatically every Friday. 
Now, as we've already mentioned, US antitrust agencies are going through great change in how they approach policy. There's an effort underway to rewrite antitrust laws, with the agencies preparing new guidelines to help companies and the courts understand how the government will approach antitrust reviews. And there seems to be general belief that past policy has been lax, allowing too much consolidation, and that has harmed consumers. Our subscribers will have noticed a fine piece of analysis dealing with this very issue, penned by our DC M&A correspondent, Curtis Eichelberger. It's a deep dive into both the issue and the history of enforcement in the US. And luckily for us, Curtis joins us now on the line. So, uh, Curtis, firstly, let's put this in some context. What do we need to know? Well, the antitrust laws, as originally written here in the United States, called for the government to block illegal deals and approve illegal ones. This was seen as an enforcement act. The laws don't say to remedy or to fix illegal mergers, and that's really important because that's really behind a very big change right now in the antitrust conversation in the U.S. In the years after Hart Scott Rudino, which was uh, a law that was passed in 1976 to give the government some time to review deals, re- uh, mergers, before they were consummated, uh, fixing deals in the years following that really became doctrine for the antitrust establishment. This is during the Ronald Reagan era. This is when the conservative movement kind of really pushed forward, the Chicago School. And the thinking was, why block an entire deal if only a small percentage of it was illegal? And so that began the era of fixing uh, illegal mergers. The current DOJ says this philosophy has resulted in consolidated markets, less innovation, and higher consumer prices. It uh, it wants to stop fixing bad deals and generally return to its original mission as an enforcer, determining whether a deal falls outside the law and if it does, suing to block it. But before companies accept this and start submitting only clean legal deals, and before antitrust lawyers start to accept this new paradigm, you know, James, there's going to be some broken dishes. And how did it develop to where remedies have become a regular part of the review process? I mean, why didn't anyone uh, question this years ago in the same way that uh, people are questioning the use of remedies today? Well, sometimes, you know, looking into our past can be really surprising and educational. We, we oftentimes think uh, the problems we have are new, but oftentimes they're just new to us. I found a New York Times article from 1986. Now keep in mind, I'm 55, and I was a freshman in college then, so this really goes back. Uh, it was about an airline deal involving Texas Air's ex- acquisition of Eastern Airlines. The Department of Transportation, which then had the regulatory oversight of airline deals, it's now the Department of Justice. They signaled that they take another look at the merger with the idea of fixing the deal. Ultimately, the deal was cleared with a divestiture of some airport landing and takeoff slots. The Times wrote at the time, more and more, as corporate America seeks ways to grow by merger, this scenario of negotiating what is a quote-unquote acceptable deal under the government's interpretation of the nation's merger laws is the mark of the Reagan administration's antitrust enforcement policy. The argument for remedies was made by uh, Rick Rule, who's now a very well-known attorney. He was the youngest assistant attorney general in the history of the U.S. At the time, he was a deputy assistant attorney general. And here's what he said. It's what I said a few moments ago. It kind of ties it together. He said, unlike any past administration, we've developed a fix-it-first doctrine for antitrust policy. Why stop an entire merger if simply one-tenth of the assets create an anti-competitive problem? 
They're making the same case today, and it's been accepted by the courts, and there's lots of case law supporting this approach. So trying to change this is definitely creating an uproar. But just for a moment, let's go back to that Times article in 86, because it's really so telling. It said that critics at the time complained that remedies encouraged, quote, companies to experiment with outlandish mergers and hoped that after negotiations with the government, the companies might be able to acquire more than they would have thought possible otherwise. The critics at the time also questioned the long-term competitiveness of the, of the components that are either spun off or sold and suggest that in the end, competition may be lost anyway. Some antitrust lawyers of the error also questioned whether the Justice Department and the FTC were playing appropriate rules in negotiating to quote-unquote fix a merger. Susan Blumfeld, a former official at the FTC at the time, said that the, the fix-it-first policy turns the Justice Department from a prosecutor into a regulator. It, the government, is no longer the adversary, but rather the negotiator, and they end up doing it with a very light hand. And this is what the DOJ is talking about now. They want to go back to being enforcers, not regulators. Sanford Lipvac, who was a President Jimmy Carter's Assistant Attorney General for Antitrust back in 79, 80, and 81, he told the Times that he questioned whether the Justice Department or the FTC had sufficient expertise to make judgments about particular industries that would allow them to remedy a merger in the first place. Now, this has been brought up more recently following retrospectives of past mergers and the government's success, or really not great success, fixing them. And he went on to say that business loves the fix-it policy of the White House, and I love it as a private lawyer, he said, because it helps the deals get through. Essentially, the government was partnering with businesses to get the deals through rather than acting enforcers as enforcers to block them. Okay, so let's take a look at what is changing, starting from the fix-it-first remedies that you've just mentioned. These have uh, become accepted by the DOJ uh, for years now, but have not been embraced by the FTC. Tell me something about them. Well, in the early days, companies uh, sought to fix a deal, seeking to fix a deal, would submit their pre-merger notification form with a proposal to remedy any harms to competition. That evolved and companies began doing a true fix-it-first, where they would divest overlapping assets and you know, problems before even filing their merger paperwork. That put a lot of risk you know, towards the companies, because what if they didn't do enough and the government blocked? Or what if, they, what if they sold these assets off and then they were stuck when the government said, oh, we want more? Nowadays, a company usually, usually meet with the agencies to discuss a potential fix and then agree to either divest the assets before close or at least negotiate a contract with a potential buyer with the ancillary acquisition ready to close immediately following the primary merger. The fix-it first remedy was even given its own section in the DOJ's remedies manual, which was published in 2020 and overseen by then Republican Assistant Attorney General Macon Del Rahim. According to the manual, these fix-it first are structural remedies where you're selling off assets that are implemented by the parties and that the DOJ accepts before a merger is consummated, but it permanently fixes the harm and doesn't require any continuing post-consummation obligations by the government. Okay, so that being the case, what does the DOJ want from companies now? What do they want companies to do and where is all of this heading? So though neither the, the DOJ's reticence to remedy illegal mergers, yet nor its acceptance of a, of a fix-it-first remedy should be revelatory to the bar. Both foreshadow the battle, though, that's coming as the DOJ and the FTC attempt to recast merger enforcement. Assistant Attorney General uh, Jonathan Cantor has been criticized within the antitrust bar for saying it isn't the government's job to help companies fix illegal mergers. 
and that remedies often fail to protect consumers anyway. Neither antitrust agency wants companies to, to announce mergers that are inherently illegal and then come to the FTC or the DOJ in search of a partner who's going to help them fix those deals and bless them with government approval. Cantor made these feelings known at, at a New York uh, Bar Association event in January. He just said it pretty bluntly. He said, in most situations, we should seek a simple injunction to block the transaction. It's the surest way to preserve competition. He said that in other, other forms uh, since then. Uh, this is really kind of a very hardcore approach the DOJ is taking. But ultimately, James, all the tough talk and drafting of new guidelines won't mean anything if Congress doesn't pass new antitrust laws. We're a nation of laws. It's that simple. You know, we're, we're, we're kind of going through a dark period in antitrust now where much is uncertain and we're filling our way and trying to determine where the danger is. Change may or may not be afoot. We hear the dogs barking. What we can't discern is whether they're chained circling. <laughs> That's a great uh, metaphor and also a great history lesson uh, today, Curtis. Uh, lovely talking to you as always. Let's catch up again very soon. Thank you, James. Curtis Eichelberger, an MLEX correspondent working out of our DC offices, and we'll post a link to his analysis at the usual place, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's mlexmarketinsight, all one word, dot com. And indeed, was that a metaphor or a simile, I hear you ask? Um, I think that the barking dogs make it a metaphor, so whatever you do, don't send me angry tweets on this particular language issue. But here's something that you can take quite literally. That's all we have time for in today's podcast. Thank you very much for your company. We'll be back in your feed next Friday at more or less the same time. From me, James Paniki, and the whole team here at MLEX and LexisNexis, thank you for your company. I'll see you again soon. Bye for now.